Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm Ann Stickney, one of two lore-focused writers from Blizzard Watch, and I've got the irreplaceable, of course, co-host Joe Perez with me today. Hey, Joe. Ooh, I've, I've upgraded the irreplaceable. This, this, that's awesome. You are irreplaceable. When you're not here, we're a little sad. Speaking of not being here, Matt Rossi is not with us today. He had some technical difficulties, so we're going to have to duo this show. Oh, no. <laughs> we can manage. It's all right. Hopefully, he'll be back for the next show. Um, what have you been up to, Joe? Painting. Lots and lots of painting. What kind I think of painting? I, well, I, I actually get to share this publicly, so it's kind of cool. And there's going to be pictures very, very soon. So in 2015, Blizzard gave all of their employees resin statues as a thank you gift. I believe it was their holiday gift. It was the Lost Viking statue. Ooh. Um, one of my... F- friends who happens to be a blizzard employee commissioned me to paint this uh, <gasps> you're so painting the lost viking statue i am painting the lost viking statue pictures should be up sometime either this week or the the next weekend coming uh before i ship it out uh so they are going to be fully painted everything's going to be taken care of for that and then it's going to ship and if everything goes according to plan either he's going to have it display on his house or at his desk at work and either way i'm super excited for this that's pretty awesome yeah, it's. I haven't seen anybody else have has gotten to paint one or has painted one. So this, to my knowledge, is going to be the first one, and I'm really, really excited about that. Aren't they resin? They are resin. So what does it take to paint one of those things? Uh, knowing how to prime it and then knowing how to seal it. Resin actually is what most miniatures are made out of. Yeah, my little my little Blizzard statue that I got, the one that they gave out is like the the orc and the wolf. Yeah, yeah, the orc and the wolf. I I have that one and that one's resin. Yeah, and those are actually already pre-painted too because that's not tinted resin. Like if you cut into it, it's 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 gray uh, in the middle or it's something. It's gray in probably. the middle. Yeah, uh, I have one too. Uh, but it's one of those things where if you prime it properly, use the right the right cleaners and, and everything to make sure it's prepped, it's like painting anything else. So it's it's super fun. The only thing is because it's bigger, it uses different techniques because when things are super, super small, you have to exaggerate all the contrast so that everything looks proper. When something's big like that, you have to sort of tone it back and find this middle ground between flat color and extreme highlights. So it's it's a super kinda, fun challenge. It's more like airbrushing. Or looks you want something that looks kind of like airbrushing yeah yeah definitely softer transitions between the colors more blending yes much more blending. gotcha gotcha i'm about to get into painting dolls because my sister has really me into her weird hobby yeah it's sort of like painting miniatures only they're like ball jointed do- this is something that she's been into for like a couple of years and then she just insisted she didn't insist she said we should do this because it would be fun and a fun sister thing to do and i'm like okay can I make it an elf? And she goes, yeah. I'm like, okay. So I'm just going to like make a blood elf out of the thing. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet because they're fairly standard. She ordered one for me as like an early <laughs> birthday present and was like, you have to come out and I'll show you how to paint everything. And apparently there's like layers involved and sealing. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know. It's all very crafty, but I'm okay. All right. I'll do crafty things. I'm game. <laughs> See, she also I does want miniature to see painting, though. Really? Okay. Yeah, she does miniature painting because um, she runs D&D campaigns and things like that. So she and her children, they all have like their own little miniatures that they use for the games and things like that. And they always go get new ones. And then they have painting parties at their house where they all paint the figs. Um, that makes me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> My sister's pretty cool. Anyway, none of this has anything to do with lore, and we should probably get in on that. So we don't have Rossi with us today, but it's just you and I. However, we have a boatload of emails to answer from you guys. Thank you for sending them in. If you do have any emails for Lore Watch in particular, you can send those to podcast at blizzardwatch.com and just put Lore Watch in the subject line, and we will eventually get to them on the show. I know we've been doing emails for a few weeks now, but I feel feel like we start talking about like one or two and then we get kind of sidetracked onto a bigger topic. So I don't feel so bad about answering emails. I have a feeling though, probably, what is the date today? Today's the 13th. It is. The next show that we record will be on the 27th, which is after Gamescom. And I believe we will probably have more to talk about in terms of Argus and 7.3 at that point. I think. I don't know. This is me looking to the future and going, 7.3 is probably pretty eminent. 
and we're going to be oh, talking yeah. more about that. Um, so, yeah, get your spoiler hats on, people, because we may be talking spoilers next episode. For this one, though, we have a bunch of emails, so let's just jump into those. The first one is actually about a novel, which is great, because I like the Warcraft novels. Um, this one's from Michael, who says, I just finished reading Wolfheart, and I had some questions. Where does this take place in the timeline of the Worgen starting zone? I remember specifically that the Alliance sends in the 7th Legion to help Gilneas, so are we to believe that they did this while Varian didn't want the Worgen in the Alliance? Two, why would a Night Elf Mage go anywhere near Maiev or the Wardens during Legion? The last we leave her in Wolfheart, she's been pretty evil towards them. Three, in terms of alliance politics, it seemed really strange for all three dwarf clans to get their own representatives. Do we have any good examples on how the alliance decides things? The dwarves can't get three votes while Stormwind only gets one. Michael, um, maybe we should talk about these one-on-one. Yeah, I think so. The timeline thing. Didn't you, like, at one point, I remember you wrote an article about this, I think, when Wolfheart first came out, like, that kind of um, pointed where the timeline was, wasn't it? Yeah, I sort of placed it, I mean, I was writing a review of the book, but I sort of placed it in the, in the correct spot. Okay, so here's here's what's going on here. The Alliance sent in the 7th Legion to help Gilneas. Yes, they absolutely did. Why? Because the Forsaken were attacking, and the Forsaken are an enemy of the Alliance, and Gilneas was, at that point in time an important strategic point mm-hmm. on in the Eastern Kingdoms, because this is just northwest, northwest? Yeah, northwest of Stormwind. If you look on the map there, you look at where Stormwind is at, and you just go up and over to the left just a little bit, Gilneas is like right there. If Sylvanas and the Forsaken had been able to take that coast, they would have posed a much more direct threat to Stormwind and the Alliance territories. Um, and I think that they kind of wanted to curb that a little bit. But they also wanted to offer aid because, of course, they wanted to offer aid. I mean, you're looking at a human kingdom. It is a human kingdom. Did Varian want the Worgen in the alliance? No. Did that mean he wasn't going to help them? No. Well, I mean, it, it goes to the whole military thing. Just if you follow purely that line of thought, right? Yeah. You have a couple different options. One, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's would have been a port city that would have ac- gave access very close to the capital of the human empire essentially at this point the only one left really the only one left besides stormwind itself like the as far as ports go that are that are massively accessible that they could have docked troops thousands and thousands of troops without any sort of well opposition whatsoever and there's no way stormwind could have gone out to meet them because again at this point Where's called where's called Tiras? Where where are they? We don't know. We don't know what they're doing. We don't have them to rely on. You also have to keep in mind too that this was all this all took place right at the start of Cataclysm. Mm-hmm. So it was at the end of Wrath of the Lich King, right? Yep. Okay. What happened during Wrath of the Lich King? Well, I mean lots of stuff. Battle for the Undercity. Yes. Varian was very particular about his feelings about the Forsaken during that particular well, campaign. He and was even, not about to let the Forsaken get away with anything. And not only that, but it's also one of those things where, too, like, he doesn't know necessarily how Forsaken are created, no. but he does know that they are primarily created from human corpses. So if you let an entire human kingdom fall to the Forsaken, chances are they're just going to bolster their numbers from it. You can't let that happen. Like, it's just something, like, it, it, yeah. even if even if you don't understand how it happens, you just know you can't give them a source of fresh soldiers. And the thing is, is... You can offer another country aid without saying, hey, would you like to be a part of my country? Exactly. Gilneas took that help and then turned around and said, hey, can we go ahead and join up with you guys? And Varian was kind of like, I don't know about that. Um, It's one thing to help somebody that needs help. It's another thing to take in people who were very, very clear about their feelings. Keep in mind that Gilneas, when Gilneas withdrew from the original alliance of Lordaeron, they were not polite about it. Nope. They just up and took off. That Not only did they up and take off, they up and took off, and then they constructed a wall. Well, and that's the thing, <laughs> and that's the thing too. Like, Not only did they do that, but when they were asking to come back in the alliance, they weren't just asking to be purely, oh, we're going to go to whatever your whims are. It's like, we would like our place back in the alliance. It, it, we want our equal footing back. We want... They came crawling back, essentially. Yeah. But and... but they didn't beg to be subservient either. Like, they no. just, they were like, they were like, we're still going to be us. We'll help. We want to be part of this thing. We want a voice too. But you're also looking at, 
you know, the man who was asking for all of this was Gen Greymane, who was the one who basically gave the original Alliance of Lordaeron giant middle finger and said, I'm out, drop the mic, walked out of the place. <laughs> so is Varian going to be particularly happy with Gen? No, it makes his... It makes his reactions a little more understandable when you think about it that way. Because Varian was, at that point, the leader of Stormwind. Varian watched his kingdom fall apart. He watched his father murdered like right in front of his eyes. He was just a kid. And then he went back to Stormwind after this whole successful campaign by the Alliance of Lordaeron. And then everything started falling apart up north. Like Everything started falling apart up north. Um, between everything that happened during the Second War with the Seven Kingdoms and, you know, Alterac's betrayal, all of all of that stuff. And then after that, there was the plague and Lordaeron was just no longer there. I mean, that had to have affected Varian pretty heavily, too, because Terranus was kind of like a second father to him, almost, after well, yeah, he lost his own. And you start considering how much life was lost just because you didn't have access to you know, more troops or... Gilneas had the resources and the yes. troops to make a considerable dent in anything that was happening up north, and they didn't do it. Which they, cost people dearly. They, the didn't, they didn't do it. And Varian has... I, I, I think we can safely say, over the course of his lifetime, Varian had a little bit of a problem with forgiving people. <laughs> However... They helped him out, and I think by the end of the novel, there was like there was a really good understanding between Varian and Gen, and I really liked the resolution that was reached there. Um, if you haven't read Wolfheart, I would really recommend it. Honestly, it's by Richard Knack. Um, it's probably, I think, one of the best books Richard Knack has written as far as the Warcraft books goes. It's easily I my favorite. I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, there are some amazing scenes in there, particularly the dynamic between Varian and Anduin is just kind of like nail-biting. Ooh, it's interesting. Uh, okay, so second question. Why would a night elf mage go anywhere near Maiev or the Wardens during Legion? The last we leave her in Wolfheart, she's been pretty evil towards them. That's can't a good really... question. I mean, I can't say I blame her. I mean, looking from her point of view, mages caused a whole lot of trouble. I mean, magic users caused, what, th at least three great events that caused almost catastrophic failures of the entire world? Yes. Specifically, night elf mages. So I understand where she's coming from, and that's sort of her, her job is to be skeptical and cool and, and mean to anybody that might cause a problem. She has to. She can't befriend them. She can't she can't instantaneously love them or be, you know, happy go lucky with them. She has to be critical of them because if she doesn't, what else is gonna happen? I find Maya a very interesting character for those reasons and other reasons as well, but um a lot of it is she very much stands for the traditionalist kind of night elf. Mm -hmm. And by traditionalist, I mean the traditions that were formed after the fallout from the War of the Ancients. She was there for the war. She saw what happened. She saw the fact that these highborn sorcerers let that power go to their heads and started making deals with the Burning Legion. She saw what that did to her people. She saw the fallout from that civil war. Her brother was directly involved with the whole thing, too. Um... And he was almost murdered by Illidan because he tried to stop Illidan from, well, he actually confronted Illidan after Illidan decided, hey, I think I'm going to make a second Well of Eternity because that won't go wrong ever. <laughs> and, and Maiev was in much the same mindset as anyone else there when, you know, when they looked at the, those actions, they went, what are you doing? Do you know what this thing did? You were there for all of it. You saw how many people mm -hmm. died. You saw everything that happened. Our world has been splintered into pieces, and you decided to make another one of these? Are you completely insane? And when Malfur... I, I feel like her resentment towards Malfurion started the moment Malfurion refused to execute Illidan. Oh, yeah, no, it absolutely did. Because, I mean, here here she sees this this great threat, this thing that you know look at everything he's done you want him to live you want him to stay alive he's just going to do it again at some point you're too weak you don't actually care about the people you care more about your brother than you do about our entirety of a people that that was that was i think probably where it all began was that she had a major problem with the fact that malfurion was putting the life of his brother above the enormity that was night elf civilization at the time 
And not only that, but I mean, again, also at this point from her eyes, all the suffering her people have already endured. Yeah. And he's like, no, we're just going to imprison him. I think that's part of the reason why she volunteered so readily to watch him. Mm -hmm. Because she wanted to make sure that if there was ever a moment that he stepped out of line, she would be the one to kill him. Now, now that I actually think is interesting because I'm very surprised that she didn't find a reason to kill him. Well, he was kind of imprisoned and not really doing much of anything. Like sure, but I mean, he shifted left like the wrong he, way. Yeah, <laughs> but know? I mean, he wasn't he wasn't making any kind of trouble or anything. He was just sitting in a cell for 10,000 years. And I mean, I guess if she had wanted to, quote unquote, find a reason, maybe she could have. But the thing is, is that Mayev is honorable, I think. Yeah, and I, I feel and like I, she's, I find that... she's an honorable creature, despite the fact that her beliefs are a little bit skewed. She wants to do yeah. the right thing, but her idea of the right thing doesn't necessarily line up with everybody else's idea of the right thing. Does that make sense? It, it does, and I think it ties directly into what we're seeing in Legion, too, yeah. because, I mean, she she does have these personal views. She does She makes them very well known. But she has this sense of duty, and that's why I think it's fascinating. Because... She has a very strongly ingrained oh, sense yes. of duty. I mean, when they made her a warden, she said, okay, that's what I'm doing. And that's what that's, she did. That's my life, For yeah. 10,000 years in the Barrow Dens, that's where she was doing her job. And she made sure that she did her job, and anybody that she trained under her were, was also doing their job. Um, what I find fascinating about Maiev is that you know, when Illidan broke free, all of a sudden she came to life because she had something to do again. She had to go get that guy. She had mm -hmm. to go hunt that guy down. She had to go chase him. She she went all the way to Outland to get him, but it was okay because it was her job and she was going to do her job. Um, and once Illidan had been defeated at the end of, you know, the whole Black Temple incident, he says, he says, you're nothing without me. And that struck a chord in her really deeply because he was right. All of her life had been dedicated to this one job. Once that job was completed, what did she have? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. She didn't even know where her brother was anymore. She didn't know what was going on with the rest of Night Elf society. She was kind of out of touch with all of it. She'd been on Outland, or she'd been in the Barrow Dens. She wasn't really cognizant of how Taronda and Malfurion, like what they were thinking as leaders or mm -hmm. anything like that. So when she returned to Night Elf Society and she took a good look, I mean, a really good look at what was going on. The thing is, is that Night Elf Society has really had some kind of dramatic shifts over the 10,000 years. It was not a static society. Their beliefs and the way that they dealt with other people changed over the years and one of those most dramatic changes was everything that happened after the third war Maya was busy hunting down Illidan and while yep. she was off on, on Outland you know hunting down Illidan and everything we had all of these political shifts going on where Tyrande and Malfurion said you know what let's go ahead and sign up with the alliance let's go ahead and join these guys let's go ahead and make these make these allies this is from a society that has been mostly nocturnal and reclusive mm-hmm like they hid in the trees. They didn't talk to people. That that was their thing. Was they didn't talk to people. They they dealt with themselves, and that was it. Um, and all of a sudden, they were joining an alliance. And when Maiev came back, she looked at the situation and said, "Okay, let's look at what happened once we started dealing with these humans. We blew up the world tree and lost our immortality. There's number one, and that's a big <laughs> number one, right? Sure. I mean." <laughs> If you want to make a big deal out of it, absolutely. No, <laughs> no it, it is. It, it, it's it's not only just a, a loss of immortality. Like, yeah, that's big, but it's a loss of an icon. It's a loss of the world uh, something tree. of big, the world tree that that, that, that you gift. literally built to that you grew to to solve a problem that you had before. The one that was created by your brother. <laughs> yep. Like like the world tree was created and placed on top of the well of the eternity to cap it and keep the energies in one place so they didn't go rampant and they didn't hopefully attract the attention of the burning legion. Yeah, that worked. Um beyond that, okay, so humanity helped out by helping and I'm quote unquote they're helping, but in the end of the third war, in the end of that climactic battle, they still lost the world tree. It just detonated. Um, did they kill Archimonde? Yeah. Or they thought they did, but, you know, that comes later. Anyway, 
but they lost their immortality. They lost the, the they lost the thing that the dragons had gifted them with. Um, they basically turned up their nose at what the dragons had given them and the very idea of protecting this thing, and and instead they destroyed it. And Malfurion did it. Beyond that, though, then they go and they make Darnassus. And did mm-hmm. Malfurion try and stop the creation of Darnassus? Yes, he did. Was Maev aware of it? Probably not. All she knew was that Malfurion was off dozing in the Emerald Dream, and they created this tree that was apparently corrupt because the dude that created it was also corrupt. So that was a mess. There was the whole thing with Cataclysm that wiped out, you know, you're looking at the shoreline. If you go to Darkshore... Play through the quest in Darkshore. The whole thing is heartbreaking. This is what happened to Night Elf civilization after they decided to ally with the humans. They were okay for 10,000 years before they decided to do this. And Maiev likely looked at this and said, you know what? Um, maybe we shouldn't have allied with these people and we would have been just fine. Um, so her thoughts and her feelings are very logical and they're very rational. Um, it's just that she was kind of in stasis while everybody else, while the entirety of Night Elf society was kind of shifting. And I shouldn't say the entirety of Night Elf society, because there were others. There were others who believed what in what she was saying. She was not working alone. She had people working with her when she was trying to do what she was trying to do in Wolfheart. Um, also, bringing in the Gilneans, that was like another gigantic affront because it was like oh okay so we get to clean up after the mess that Malfurion and the other druids made that's fantastic yeah let's bring them in here where they can seriously do some damage that's great and that that final straw that final straw for Maiev though was when she returned to Darnassus and found night elf mages wandering around just wandering around practicing magic like this was a perfectly normal thing (laughs) And she remembers. She remembers the War of the Ancients. She remembers mm-hmm. what these people did. And she's she can't she can't fathom the sheer amount of stupidity that is going on right now in her eyes. Cause she all she's expecting is War of the Ancients Part Two. Guess what she's got right now, kind of. War of the Ancients Part Two. Yeah. Burning yeah, Legion is accurate. back in force and you know what is she going to do about it so yeah i don't i don't necessarily think that everybody was aware that mayev was responsible for what was going on um i think the the wardens that were out on the broken shore i don't know if they were aware of what mayev was doing and nobody really mentioned that whole thing where oh she you know tried to commit a few acts of murder that were probably not very well received like we haven't seen what Maya's been doing beyond that. We haven't seen any interactions between Maya and Taronda or Malfurion for that matter. Yeah, you know, that's a really good that we haven't, have we, this expansion? No. And I keep waiting for it, you know? I, I mean it feels like that should have happened by now almost. Yeah. That shoe should have dropped. Now, granted, Malfurion and Taronda they were they were distracted by the Emerald Nightmare. While Maya was basically and at this point, following Illidan, and now that yeah. he's woken up, so I mean, they are doing kind of two different things. If we if we make the assumption that they're kind of happening happening simultaneously, sure, but it's it's odd. It really is odd that they have not interacted, unless she's purposely avoiding it, which is also a possibility. She may have just not wanted to deal with them at all, and just kind of one of those things where it's like I have other things I need to worry about. I have other things that require my attention. I don't have time to worry about what they're doing. Well, and I'm they're not actively if, interfering. So, okay, go do your thing. I'm wondering if Jared is kind of keeping her separate too, because we don't know what he's doing either. That's true. We haven't we haven't done anything with him since since he rescued her. Yeah. So that's true. Good question. Where he's at, and I'm wondering if he's just kind of cushioning it so that the two of them don't meet. Because the thing about Jared is, does he know his sister is messed up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's fully aware of how much she's messed up, but she's still his sister. So he still kind of wants to protect her and make sure that she's safe because she's pretty much all he has now. His wife died. Um, I don't, I don't, I kind of want to see more from the whole Maiev thing. I really do because the end of Wolfheart was so weird Mm -hmm. and they, they made it out a little bit that Maiev had kind of maybe gone a little crazy, but I don't think that she went crazy. I think that 
in her eyes, everything that she was saying and seeing was making all kinds of sense. And it would make sense to somebody who had been removed from society pretty much while society had been going on without them, you know? And that that raises a good point, too, though. Like, it's it's one of those things where she has been doing so many other things that, I mean, honestly, what else? she's already got enough to worry about. And it's one of those things where anybody who has seen anything that she's seen, yeah, you'd probably come off as a little broken, too, because we are we are the sum of all of our life experiences. Her life experiences haven't exactly been the best. So and then to go back to mages, when you see mages go off the deep end and you see what problem you know, tapping into that arcane energy can cause. And to your mind, it is caused by the arcane energy. You don't know the full story because you're not a mage yourself. You don't know how they became corrupted. You just know that they did. So your assumption is that mages just, when they delve too deep, go mad. And when they go mad, big things happen. So, like, she's not... Because they've got all kinds of power at their fingertips. Exactly. And so that makes sense coming from her. So... As far as the actual question of why Nut Elf Mages would go anywhere near Maeve or the Wardens, most mages probably don't know that about her. They don't know her in general because she's been gone for how long? She's been doing other things for, for how long? I mean, for 10,000 years, she was, you know, being a jailer. And then she was chasing Illidan to a whole other world across the cosmos. And then even though she's back now, what has she been doing? She's been dealing with the Demon Hunter. She has had no time to interact with mages. So, yeah, at the end of, uh, of Wolfhard, she may have been a little cold to mages in general, but she's had other things to worry about. And most mages haven't interacted with her, so they don't know that. They don't know her story. They don't know what's happened to that point. I don't, I don't think that Tyrande and Malfurion, I don't think that they put out any kind of official announcement of, yep, by the way, the Wardens went completely insane. Because yep, nope. why would you? Yeah, they just you... they reinstated the Sentinels pretty much. When you think about it, too, why would they announce that publicly anyway? Because the Wardens are supposed to be in charge of the most dangerous things that the Night Elves have jailed for so long. And if you say, yeah, the Wardens have gone off the deep end, we we don't know if we can trust them anymore, everybody in Night Elf society is going to go, well, wait a minute, don't we have, like, this vault with all of these things that we've locked away that, you know, demons and, and, and weird now, elementals and everything else? Now, those guys have been removed. Those Wardens have been removed. Um I don't but remember I'm saying, where it was said, but they were they were kind of off by themselves. Oh, sure. But I mean, if you say that about wardens in general, what excludes them from that list? So they can't That's make true. a statement. They can't say wardens have gone crazy. They can't say, they can't even say Maev has gone crazy because she's the most you know notable of all of them, really. So you can't say that. You don't say anything like that. You just kind of keep it hush hush and, you know, hope nothing goes wrong. You don't really have much of a choice from a political standpoint. Otherwise, your people are going to be in turmoil again. Um, on to the third question here. In terms of alliance politics, it seemed really strange for all three dwarf clans to get their own representatives. Do we have any good examples on how the alliance decides things? Um, we don't, really. I had always assumed that the dwarves kind of would talk to each other and, you know, two-thirds majority. They'd figure out which way to vote, to cast their vote based on that. Um, they seem Maybe. to be getting along more now than they have in the past. Uh Moira, there was that whole scenario during Missa Pandaria with Moira mm -hmm. where she helped out Varian and she was kind of trying to prove that, yeah, the Dark Iron could help and they weren't all just villains waiting for the right moment to strike or whatever. They were actually people that were willing to put in the work. Um, Still one of my favorite scenarios. Yeah, yeah. It really, it, it kind of was because you got to see that interaction between Moira and Varian and back in the Shattering, their interaction was a lot different. <laughs> it was a lot different. Um, as far as as far as the the dwarf clans go and how they r relate to each other, I mean, they have the Council of the Three Hammers, and I feel like the Council itself consists of one vote towards whatever, rather than they get three votes. But I mean, I could be wrong. I don't. I don't think that we've ever really gotten well, the ins and outs on the mechanics of how this sort of thing works. No, I don't think we have. And I think the closest we've actually gotten to it is what was represented in the movie, which is a whole separate universe. But, yeah, you know, we, we're making the assumption that each faction only has a single vote or voice. And maybe that's not the case. Uh, we know that there are two distinct leaders of the Night Elves, but each represent a different faction of that society. Maybe they both have their own individual vote in the alliance. Uh, 
how many human kingdoms are now united under the banner of Stormwind? Do you think that they would do so at the cost of all autonomy? Like they wouldn't possibly want to have a representative or a voice to their own council or war council? I would assume that they would. And the same with the dwarves. I mean, just because they're united or have their own separate faction doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to have the same opinion. And it's also one of those things where if you go to a war council, it's not necessarily just, you know, everybody just vote. It's discussing, here's what my people can do. And with dwarves in general, the wild hammers are very different uh, than the dark iron and what they what their specialties are and what they can do. And both you know? of them are vastly different from the bronze beards. Exactly. Because you look at look at the wild hammers. That's your shamanistic society of dwarves. They don't really have mages, so to speak, but they have shamans up the wazoo and they have a completely different. They're also the... out in the open world and the bronze they beards are. and the dark iron both are kind of like, not... Nah, not so much. Exactly. And, and, and the bronze beards are very much the warrior clan. They are, they are super into that militaristic style of, of protection. And then you have the dark iron who excel at the arcane arts. It's one of those things where they all have their own specialty, which means they all have their own view, which means they all have their own specific input that is valuable to the alliance in general. And I think I, to me, I think that would be more how it would be set up, not necessarily that they get three votes versus Stormwind only gets one. It's OK. What is your perspective on this? What do you think from your side? What do you take away from this? And I think that's where the strength of the alliance really comes in versus uh, the current state of the horde, if anything else. Because, I mean, current state of the horde is, is not exactly equal input, we'll say. Uh, but alliance, I think that that's more how they work. They want to work together to understand what are our options, what is the best thing we can do for survival, what are our choices. And so I think thinking about in terms of vote is maybe necessarily the wrong thing. Yeah, I don't know if it comes down to like simple matters of votes. I believe in Wolfheart they actually did like they cast votes about whether or not Gilneas should be allowed into the alliance. Um and that's a, that's the kind of situation where yeah, okay, I could see votes coming into play because you're debating whether or not you should let another group of individuals into your whole faction, mm-hmm. your whole organization and yeah, that I could see coming down to votes, but yeah. Um I don't know. I don't know. We haven't really gotten a whole lot of, hey, here's exactly how politics works on Azeroth. We've Not going to lie. Yeah, it's kind of I like I would a... love to see more of that, though. Yeah? I So this is something that I know is not necessarily a, a popular opinion. I love court intrigue. I oh, love okay. the way that it works, which is why... <laughs> Which is why one of the things uh, in Legion that I really loved was Court of Stars. I loved the event where you had to sort of, you know, intermingle with the the, the high society and, and gossip and yes. gossip and things like that. Because I think when it's done really well, it adds incredible insight to not just factions, but you know, the individuals of those factions that are forced to interact with everybody else. And when you have such uh, interesting groups uh, as the Alliance has, when you have you know, gnomes, which don't necessarily always agree with dwarves that don't necessarily always agree with elves or the humans. And then you have the sub factions within each of those groups. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I want to see more of. I want to see more of that interplay because I think that's when you get really more to the meat of those races. Have you, have you played dragon age inquisition? Oh, oh yeah. The whole Hallam Sheral thing. You must yes. have just ate that up. With yes, I did. <laughs> but that's the stuff I love because it, yeah. it's so rich. Yeah. It, it's, I like I like those kind of scenarios because there are many layers to what's going on. There's that glossy friendly layer that you present to everybody and then there's that scheming layer right underneath that where it's like everybody is actually trying to take advantage of each other, but they're trying their best not to let everybody know that that's what's going on. So there's it it's it's interesting. I do like seeing that interplay. I did like the Court of Stars. I thought that was a pretty cool scenario or cool dungeon, excuse me. Um, Michael, I hope those that answers your questions. Um, if not, hey, we talked about it a lot. Anyway, uh, our next email is from Spencer, who says, Based on the way Tomb of Sargeras ends, I have a simple question that has profound implications. Did Illidan pull Argus out of the Twisting Nether, which seems counterproductive to killing the Legion permanently, or did he pull Azeroth into the Twisting Nether? What does this answer mean for the entire conflict with the Legion? Thanks, Spencer. This is actually something that I was thinking about, like, yesterday. <laughs> um, yeah, this came up in guild conversation during raid one night. Yeah, because it was like, okay, if Argus is in the sky and the 
the Legion is there, but the sky is not the Twisting Nether, then if we kill the Legion on Argus, does that mean that they aren't actually dying? Mm, In which case, I don't know what is that. the point to this assault? I, I have a different theory. So when Illidan completed the ritual, when, mm-hmm. he, when he used the Sargerite Keystone to do all that stuff, where were we? We were in the Twisting Nether. We were on a ship. We weren't on Azeroth. Yeah. So I don't, but we weren't at Argus either. Not yet. And I think what he did is I think he used it to basically do exactly what the Dark Portal did on a bigger scale. I think what we're seeing is that he opened up literally a tunnel or gateway between the two, that he folded time and space to connect the two. Not that they're right in front of each other, but they can see each other like looking through a pane of glass. The way that I've heard it referred to is that he basically tore a hole in reality Yep. between Azeroth and Argus. So, yeah, we're not... The planet is not physically present in the sky. It's like we're looking through a gateway where the planet happens to be right there. It's a planet-sized gateway, and the planet is right there. Um, And considering the amount of souls that he put into that spell to begin with, even to set the anchor, yeah, I absolutely 100% believe it because I'm pretty sure he used more souls and more arcane energy than Gul'dan ever did to try to open up the, the dark portal. Yeah. So having something that massive, not even remotely surprised. Um, well, he was, and he was also using the Stargate Keystone to kind of which help was also a massive that. force of and energy. That, yep. Yeah, that thing is that thing is way more powerful than anyone would ever think. In the um, in the Illidan novel, he he uses the Keystone to basically hop between worlds, like astral projection, kind of hop around and things like that. And that's how he maps where mm-hmm. everything is because the Keystone sort of keeps things it's like it's like a giant map of all of these different gateways so you can hop from place to place to place yeah it's the keystone that ties all the legion demon worlds together and that's its entire purpose so it has the coordinates for every single one of them right it's basically the map it is Mm -hmm. it is the big map because he was hopping around blind for a while there um haha demon hunter pun but not really (laughs) uh so i feel like when we go to argus the reason okay Maybe kind of 7.3 spoilers, but not really because, I mean, we know we're going to Argus. Uh, we're taking a dimensional ship to get to Argus. We're taking a Drenai dimensional ship. Note, I say dimensional ship. It's not a spaceship. Mm-hmm. We're not just flying up into space. We're traveling between dimensions. We're traveling through this rip in reality. Um, and I feel like that's why we need that. That we can't just make, we can't just have mages make a portal. Maybe we can have them make a portal once we reach the other side, but we can't, like, stand on Azeroth, look up there, and go, okay, I'm going to create a portal to that place. No, you've never been there. It's across realities. We have no idea what's there. (laughs) So we have to take a ship to get to it. Um, And since those Draenei ships, they're dimension-hopping ships. They aren't a traditional spaceship where it's like, ooh, we're going to take off and fly into space with the rockets and everything. It's not like that. Um, they hop around. They hop around a lot, and they hop around very fast, and they hop around between realities. They're capable of hopping between realities um, and traveling vast, vast amounts of distance in, like, blink of an eye. So I feel like when we go there and when we kill those demons, we will still technically be in the Twisting Nether. Um, You can see Azeroth from Argus, but again, I think it's just we're looking back through the gateway is all. That gateway is huge. So you can see Argus from Azeroth and you can see Azeroth from Argus. It's like a two-way two-way mirror? Is that what you call it? Yeah, that's that's or close enough, I guess. <laughs> close enough. Um so I feel like no, it's not going to be counterproductive to kill the demons on Argus. I I feel like if we kill demons on Argus, they are going to be dead because Argus is still in the Twisting Nether. It's just we have access to it now. Um because, yeah, that was my first thought yesterday was, wait a minute, did he pull that out of the Twisting Nether? Because if he did <laughs> and we go kill those demons, they're just going to come back again. Why would that even be a thing? <laughs> Illidan is way smarter than that, I thought. So, and I mean, the demons have been kind of hammering home this point, all expansion, that they could just keep coming back. So that would have been a really dumb move. Um, I don't think that that was really a dumb move. I think he just, he pulled aside a curtain. Yep. Something along those lines. Okay. 
Uh, next email is from Nehru, who's a level 110 rogue on current tour, who says, Dear Lore Watch Podcast, why have mages suddenly embraced the age reversal magic that Agewin used? The two poster children of it are Modera and Cadgar. It makes sense with Cadgar to fix himself to look closer to his actual age, but Modera should be in her mid to late 60s at least, since she's been on the council since before Cadgar was sent to Medivh. Sorry if the question is long, but I'm a fan of the old wise wizard like Antonidas, but we'll never see that if mages can just live indefinitely in bodies that are forever in youthful prime from Nero. Yeah, I what was thinking about What do you think about, about mages and ages? I think it's a necessary evil right now, and I think that's why they've embraced it. Because we're at a point in time where, one, we're at war. Uh, two, we're at war for the survival of an entire planet. And uh, having old, decrepit mages who are frail of body, uh, well, while they may be powerful in magic, if you boot one in the chest and the ribcage collapses, can't really do a whole lot of magic if you can't breathe. So... I, I kind of understand a little bit of, okay, we need to... I think it's more to, like a self-defense kind of thing. I think it is, because, I mean, think about it, right? The Legion has been masquerading in Dalaran. Like, this is a thing that you can go into Dalaran now as a player character, and there are several events, depending on what your class is and what happens, where you go and you talk to somebody who who happens to be uh, an Authorzim or a demon that is masquerading as somebody who's just a normal Dalaran citizen. They're just hanging out, chilling, listening to everything, reporting exactly. it all back to the Legion. And what's to say that once somebody doesn't chirp in the ear, okay, go kill this mage while she's sleeping. Or, you know, go kill this mage while she's taking her 18th nap of the day because she's 800 years old. You know, it, it's you have when you take it that it's like, of course, they're going to want a more youthful body, something that can handle the ravages of war, <clears throat> something that may be able to better handle pumping that level of arcane energy that they're going to have to channel to fight And I think it makes perfect sense that they would want to do that. Maybe a byproduct and a reflection of the amount of power that they're currently carrying, you know? Um, I like to think of it as a different kind of armor. They wear cloth, yes, but they also keep themselves youthful, or youthful-ish. I mean, Cadgar is in no way, stretch of the imagination, a a youthful man or anything. Um, He's just not as wizened as he was Mm -hmm. when Medivh first perform that spell on him and the thing is is that wasn't necessarily Cadgar so much as it was the effects of the spell slowly wearing off because Medivh did two things he aged Cadgar and he sapped him of all of his magical prowess so by the end of that fight Cadgar was just weak and old and then once we got into the second war his power slowly started coming back and now he's arguably as powerful as Medivh was right. at, at the height. Like, there's mentions of that process. in Karazhan. It, yeah, it was a slow process, but it started coming back again. It's not too far of a stretch to think, okay, well, if that was temporary, if his, if the power leech was temporary, maybe the aging was temporary as well. So over the years, he's been kind of Benjamin buttoning it <laughs> and getting a little I'll younger. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> Now he's kind of like evened out to where he's where he should be appropriately as far as his age is concerned, um, which kind of is a little sad because he missed he missed all of those amazing opportunities that people get in their twenties. <laughs> <laughs> he just never got to do any of that. Uh, the other, I mean, to to compound that a little bit more too for some of the other mages, the other thing to consider too is. How many mages have been lost over the course of years and wars? How much has Dalaran sacrificed in many. its training? And so wouldn't you want your most powerful, most wizened to be around longer to help train the next generation, to help bring those who need to come up into the fold and fight up to speed? Or would you rather them die off because of old age? I like, mean, it's... you look at what happened during, was it the Third War? They brought yeah, Archimonde? Third yeah, Third more. They bring Archimonde back. Big ceremony. What is Archimonde? What's the first thing he do- does? He looks at Dalaran and says, I'm going to wreck that. And then he does. <laughs> yep. He puts on his overalls, goes over and makes with the stompy stomp. I mean, but and you have to consider that. Why would he do that? Because mages are a threat. Mages are a threat to them. They're very so, powerful. And the older they are, the more knowledge they have, the more powerful they are, the more dangerous they are. And so that to me, it makes perfect sense. You would want to preserve your strongest weapons as long as possible. Okay, I'm going to go to the next question, and this is probably going to be our last one. But I feel like you and I, in particular, are really going to enjoy this one because it's I about so. shaman. Yeah, <laughs> and and I enjoy talking about shaman. Uh, 
The email is from Zergak, who's an elemental shaman on Turalian, and he says, Distinguished Lore Triad. It's a duo today, but thank you. He says, A few weeks ago, Mr. Rossi expressed his dissatisfaction at the Shaman Order Hall campaign regarding Neptalon's nonchalance about his absence since Cataclysm. Is it possible that the Neptalon player's encounter in the Order Hall is an imposter? Perhaps it's some manifestation of the Old Gods, as Shara or both working together. Is it possible that the Old Gods and or as Shara corrupted Neptalon without alerting the Shaman of the Earthen Ring? Thanks, Zergak. P.S. I love the show and I've been a listener since before the days of Matt Matt the Ogre. I miss Matt Matt the Ogre. But Matt Matt the Ogre. Matt Let's Matt. pour one out for him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Neptalon. I, yeah. you know, there are a few, there are a few different things that are kind of interesting with the whole Shaman Order Hall. Um, before we even get into the Neptalon thing, there's the fact that when you arrive, what's one of the first things that happens? Thrall loses mm-hmm. the Doomhammer, just loses it, just straight up loses it. It abandons and, him. Yep. Yeah. And that's a reflection of what happened during Warlords, which... I thought was pretty fascinating because I was waiting for the fallout from that. I knew the fallout from that would happen eventually. I just didn't know when or where because those kind of actions are not the kind of actions that the elements would be particularly happy about. Um, Second, of course, is the Neptalon thing. Third is the Magatha thing. Yeah. So funnily enough, I actually just guessed it on another podcast where I talked about the Shaman Order Hall campaign for probably in a good hour just by itself uh, <laughs> well so, we don't have that kind of time but <laughs> I, know. Uh, the, I absolutely love the shaman order hall campaign not just because i'm a shaman but because of all the campaigns that i've played through and completed or seen completed i think that it is the most relevant because it lets you do some really cool things that even the titans didn't get a chance to do because shaman are attuned to the elements in a way that nothing else is um as far as neptalon goes it is a very interesting question I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't think he's corrupted. And the reason I don't think he's corrupted, we have something in the Shaman Order Hall that pretty much would alert us to the fact if he was. If you're a Resta Shaman, you wield it pretty much daily. The Scepter of Ajar is created with the waters from the First Well of Eternity, which is linked to all of the water and elemental water plane of Azeroth and everything that's linked to it. It gives you control over creatures of the water. That's one of the reasons why the Legion wanted it. It's one of the reasons why Queen Azara would give it to her lieutenants or her generals to go out into the world and, and cause havoc. Because I can go to the, the water giants and say, you're, you're under my control now. Or I can go to the murlocs and say, well, you're mine now. Let's go do this thing. It, it's incredibly powerful. Anything of the water elementals, everything like that, respond to it. I'm fairly confident that such an arcane artifact would say, yeah, he's, he's not actually made of water. This is probably bad. Or it would have had a violent reaction of some nature. This is me spitballing a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to say that something crafted from the blood of a Titan itself <laughs> would, would alert us to an old God corruption in some capacity. Okay. But where did we get that scepter from? We stole it from uh, Queen Ajara's Lieutenant. Okay. And where were we? We were on the elemental plane of water. Okay. What's Neptalon in charge of? The elemental plane of water. So who's to say Neptalon didn't set that up? Possibly. I, I'll, grant, I'll grant you that. But at the same point, if that was the case, why didn't he do it earlier? Why didn't he try to get us to get that scepter earlier because when they were trying to invade it stuff back was, in Cataclysm? Because none of the stuff that was going on in Legion right now was happening. I feel like Fair. a lot of this Legion stuff, you know, you have Ashara working in the background. Um, you have her working on... Oh my gosh, what's the name of the artifact? The Pillar of Creation. The Tidestone. The Tidestone. The Tidestone. She was, she was trying to get the Tidestone back again. Um, she's even been trying to get the Tidestone back again as recently as in the Tomb of Sargeras. Because the whole mm-hmm. reason that you go down there, when you go down there, the Naga are very delighted to see you and say, Oh, yeah, she told us that you'd bring, us, bring it right to us. This is great. Um, she was expecting it. She's not working with the Legion. She's not. And this whole attack by the Legion has presented an interesting diversion yes, for, it's an opportunity for, for creatures that are aligned with the old gods. It's why we see Xavius and the Nightmare suddenly make a resurgence. They, have the, they can afford the opportunity to do so. And, and while that's fair, I, I also still don't think that Neptalon's response is out of character for him. Like, I don't 
we know that the elemental lords were generals under the rule of the old gods, sure, but they've been locked away forever. Of course it's not out of character for him. If he's corrupted or if he's working for Ashara or the old gods, then he wouldn't make a response. He would try and cover for that, wouldn't he? But I'm also saying that nonchalance is sort of the way of water, right? It just goes... uh, God, I'm going to hate myself for saying this. It goes with the flow. It just is what it is. It doesn't have the fiery temperament of fire. It doesn't have... You know, the the staunch sourness of Earth where it's completely immobile. Um, It doesn't have the ethereal nature of wind. Each each that's one of the things that I think is interesting about the Shaman Order Hall campaign is each interaction with any of the elemental lords really characterizes their element, at least how it's been described in the past. Fire was very entertaining. Fire was amazing. Uh, Wind was really good, too. Twice over. Um but it was one of those things where you look at Neptulon and, yeah, if he's the elemental lord of water, he's not going to really be emotional one way or another unless he ran off to go marry the, uh, the the squid in the first place, which, you know, some people may remember that if you do. Thumbs up. Awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, nothing to me really screams that sort of level of corruption. I also think that of all the people or all the classes that old gods would be f- basically found out earliest and quickest by shaman druid paladins and priests because they're attuned to sort of a different frequency right they, they understand things a little bit different i'm fairly confident that in our interactions we would have sensed it just like we sensed corruption before just like anything like that there, there's been several instances of that in the past where it's like yeah this this isn't right we need to, to go handle this that said is it possible sure it is absolutely possible uh, that the old gods are, are manipulating the elemental lords and we're just unwittingly doing their bidding. See, that's gonna, what they do. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue for the other side here for a minute. Um, you got Magatha as a follower. Magatha. Unfortunately. Is it Magatha? Is that it is, the official? It is pronounced Magatha. The, yeah, anyway, she's still Magatha to me. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the doomstone that she had in her possession. We took it. We took it, we tried to use it. Didn't go so well. We realized when we tried to use it that, no, maybe we shouldn't be using this thing and we ought to, you know, lock it up and keep it somewhere safe. Where do we put it? Put it under Order Hall, right near where the water is. Right next to where Neptalon is. That just seems like a tremendously bad idea. Um, And I know Neptalon, you know, he's very nonchalant about the whole thing about, oh, no, I'm fine, I'm back. But... Given the force of what we fought at, you know, the Throne of the Tides, and, and given what we saw of Azamat and how powerful that creature was, and the fact that he just took off. He, like, latched himself onto Neptalon and took took off. He took off with an elemental lord in tow. Had Neptalon, you would think that Neptalon at full power, or even Neptalon at half power, would be able to swat that thing away with without, you know, even second-guessing it or anything. And yet, it dragged him off and and left us there wondering, huh, what happened here? And then when he shows up again, he just sort of shows up. He's just there. Like, he never left. And he doesn't really answer any questions or anything about where he's been. Well, and, I mean, and to be, we got to put that in the context, too. Part of the reason that they were there to begin with is because he refused to side with Deathwing and the Old Gods. Right. That was the whole reason that during Cataclysm, we actually had to go... Uh, to the abyssal maw and and get him yeah like we are or save him even though you know we didn't get a full chance of of doing that like and they explain it later as you know neptalon does manage to break free of azimut but again it, it's i don't know it, it's interesting if he managed I mean, to break free of azimut why wasn't he there helping us during the whole cataclysm thing you know it's like because... how long did it take him to break free that's true, and it, we also don't know what happened in between. And I, and I get it; that's a huge blank space. There's just a big gap there, and that gap could be anything. And I tend to lean towards the idea that the old gods, in particular, are—they've kind of woven themselves into this space where the elements are working for them. I mean, they worked for them during the Black Empire. They had the—they established the elemental lords to work for them during the Black Empire. The elements on Azeroth were not a good thing. Um, and they've never really been a good thing. They were lacking the spirit to kind of keep them chilled out well, like the ones on Draenor. So, to me, it doesn't seem too far-fetched that these these elements would also be creatures capable of deception. Um, 
particularly. Well, Alakir was. We know that. Alakir was. Um, absolutely, Alakir was. They they all were to a degree. They were capable of it. Whether or not they indulged in it is, you know, another thing altogether. But you had, um, oh my gosh, I forget her name. Earth one. Uh, Therizane. Therizane. Thank you. I wanted to say Thessarian, and I'm like, no, that's somebody else entirely. Uh, Therizane. You had Therizane who had kind of removed herself to the point where she was like, she didn't want to interact with anybody. She didn't want to talk to anybody. She mm-hmm. wasn't really very trustworthy of mortals at all. And you really had to work during Cataclysm to earn her trust. Um, you still had to work in it during Legion, too, when you were yeah, doing you- the... Uh- when you were going for Doomhammer, you, you had, had to, go, to earn her trust. You had to go earn it all over again because it was the same. It was the same thing. It was, you know what? When mortals come in here, things get messed up, and I don't like it. But the the, the interesting thing to me, though, too, is if you look at the history of the Elemental Lords, yeah, they were eventually used as you know minions or generals of of the old gods. That wasn't the original case when no. the when the old gods first came to Azeroth. Uh, when they came out of the Great Dark, the Elemental Lords had already been born. They were already part of Azeroth. They're tied to Azeroth in, in sort of an intrinsic way that were, we can't possibly understand. But they, but they were thought, like, yeah, they were in that kind of state of chaos because the world soul was consuming they all the were, spirit. But they fought it. They did unite to fight against the old gods at first because they were a threat to their domain. It wasn't until after they got beaten down, basically, uh, that the the old gods enslaved the elemental uh, lords, so it's one of those things where. What I, I'm wondering is, I think they would is, fight against it really hard. What I'm wondering is, is there a point where the enslavement turns into a willing kind of thing? Because when you look at what happened during Legion. Deathwing went to each of these elemental lords. Ragnaros was right on board. He's like, yep, sure, cool, let's go wreck Hyjal. I'm cool with that. Alakir. Alakir was like, yeah, you know what? Okay, we'll go ahead and, you know, sign me up. Therizane was withdrawn from it all, but Therizane's domain had been nearly smashed to pieces when Deathwing, you know, busted his way out of there. So it was understandable that she wasn't really happy or Mm -hmm. willing to listen to Deathwing or the old gods or anything either of them had to say. And then you have Neptalon, and Neptalon was kind of outside of it all. He he had the plane of water, but they had to fight him. They they he he wasn't going to give in. So I don't know. It's just to me, it just seems weird that there's that big blank space that was never really explained. And it also, as far as the shaman go, to me, it feels like the elements. If the if the old gods were going to strike again, they would go for their their oldest lieutenants as far as it that that goes the you know their oldest allies which was the elements back there during the black empire because yeah sure they were fighting against each other at first but when push came to shove the elements were working for the old gods and that's thousands and thousands that's so long ago that we can't even really fathom how long ago it was it stands to reason that maybe that's still in play and the shaman on Azeroth are very different from the shaman on Draenor. Mm-hmm. The elements on Draenor are very different from the elements on Azeroth. It all has to do with the presence of spirit. So I don't know. I really don't know. But to me, it feels like this is one of those things, one of those situations where I could very easily see it turning into a gotcha scenario when we get back from Argus and doing whatever we have to do there. See, and that's one of those things where like, I could definitely see it being that. I hope it's not. Because that would make me feel incredibly poor about the time that I spent doing all this stuff in the Order Hall campaign. Yeah. Which, honestly, one of the cool things about that is as a shaman, you unite the four elements to fight on your behest or the behest of the planet, which hasn't been done since the time the old gods first touched down on the plane. Right. So, I mean, it, it's this, this epic moment that I feel would be completely diminished by by sort of that revelation. Can I see it happening? Sure. Do I want it to happen? No way. I mean, I guess I could see that moment being d- diminished, but I don't think that it really diminishes it. Because in that moment, it was still a very extraordinary thing. Sure, it's but then you were you know, doing it all at the behest of the old gods, essentially, at that point. Because at that point, it. you were just used. Not all of it. Because I don't think that Thunderon is working for the old gods. I don't think that... What's his name? The new Fire Lord. I don't think that he's working for the old gods or anything. I, I think that there's a very earnest effort put forth by all of the elemental lords, including Therizane, eventually, once you kind of regain her trust and she goes, okay, I guess I'll go ahead and help you out. But 
Neptalon is that odd one out. Neptalon was the one that never really turned during Cataclysm, but he also conveniently disappeared. And then he came, mm-hmm. comes back now and he's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm fine. And, and out of game or out of, or, I'm sorry, out of lore and into game, like that sort of makes a little sense just because of the, the mechanics of how that all went down, the content that we wanted missing during Cataclysm and, and stuff like that. And this could also just be uh, logically it could just be a cheeky reference to that. <laughs> um on the Which... one hand, yeah, okay, I can see that because <laughs> you know we were supposed to get we were supposed to get a raid out of that. Things were supposed to happen there that didn't happen there, but that doesn't mean that you can't write over that story or resolve it in a way that still pushes the story forward. It doesn't need to sit there as a loose end that was never resolved. You can just resolve it in a different way. Blizzard has done that before. I've seen them do that before, so I I don't I don't know. I'm just a real. I, I, I keep looking at Neptalon and I keep giving him the side eye and I keep waiting for something to happen. Well, Particularly after that event with Magatha, when we take the Doomstone and we're like, yeah, we're just going to plunk this right in front of Neptalon because that yeah. won't be bad at all. And the other side of the coin, too, is of the Elemental Lords, he's also disappeared again. Yeah. So, like, we have interactions with all the other ones. I can go to, uh, you know, the Firelands or I can go to the, the uh, airplane. And talk with the current ruler of those. <laughs> the airplane. Can, yeah. The, <laughs> um, but I can go. I can go to those places. I can go to Skywall. I can go to Deep Home. Um, I can go to Firelands, and I can interact with the elemental lord that's there. You can't do that with Neptulon. No, and theoretically, he's supposed to be right there, but he's not. So where'd he go? Where yep. is he? What is he doing? Hmm. Mysteries. Good question. Anyway, uh, Zergek, I know that doesn't really answer your question per se but the truth is we really don't know I mean we just we don't have a solid answer for that yet I feel like if they are going to resolve it to where yes Neptalon was actually working under the table for the old gods all along that's something that we will see at least referenced or touched upon soon because I still I mean the overwhelming feeling that I'm getting is the next expansion we're going to see it's going to be old gods related Oh, oh yeah! Like, and if it I, is, I'm sure. At one point, we're gonna have to talk about spoilers because there's stuff that's been floating around there that seems pretty much to indicate that. Okay, well, I haven't jumped into any of those spoilers yet, so um, I will by the time we record the next show because I, I feel like we're gonna be way closer to the release of seven three, and those are all things that we're probably gonna want to talk about. Um, I have a feeling that we're gonna have a lot. We're gonna get a lot of discussion out of seven three because there's there's a lot there. There is a lot to unpack with 7.3. It's almost like another mini expansion, I feel. Kind of. There's so much material there. <laughs> um, and you think that there's a lot on the Broken Shore, but you haven't seen Argus yet. So, yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, uh, I think that's going to wrap us up for emails because I think we're running out of time here. So we should probably wrap up the show. If you do have an email for Lore Watch, again, just send that to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Make sure you put Lore Watch in the subject line and that way we'll know that it's intended for the show. Blizzard Watch, it's made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch and your continued support means that this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue and an ads free site experience and for you guys that are listening audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service you can download many blizzard's titles including the ones that we talked about today so uh wolfheart and illidan i believe both of those are available as audiobooks um as well as many others both blizzard and non-blizzard titles you could sign up for that by going to blizzardwatch.com slash audible and help support the show um Final thoughts, Joe. Uh, as far as Neptalon goes, if we are running into a situation here where Neptalon is corrupt, what do you think that means for the Earthen Ring and the Shaman of the Earthen Ring? We're just going to do exactly what we did with Ragnaros. Kill him on his own mental plane and put somebody else in his place. Yeah. Like, honestly, we did it with, we did it with two elemental lords at this point. Why wouldn't we do it with a third? Well, yeah, we I guess we did it with Alakir and we did it with Ragnaros. Therizane's murdered... the only one. Therizane's the only one who hasn't been shady at all. She's too, uh, she's, I don't want to she's say. She's been very straightforward about how much she doesn't like us. She's blunt. She's super blunt, which yeah. makes sense because she's Earth. <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm just saying like that to me, that's the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is 
we finally have our abyssal maw raid. We finally have to go and cleanse that that infection of the old gods. Um, which, I mean, if you listen to some of our previous episodes, might make sense when we start talking about the underwater city of the sleeping, you know, of the dreamer. We, yeah. Which, which I think if it's going to be an expansion about old gods is pretty much guaranteed to happen I'm at least at some much point. looking forward to now, all of this. The other thing is it could be this whole big gotcha where he's not corrupted and he's the one that gets us down to the sleeping city, which also could be possible. But if he is, if he is corrupted... We're just going to destroy him and put somebody else in his place. And be like, hey, you see what we did to your boss? Right. I'm your boss now. You are going to do what <laughs> I say. It's your turn. <laughs> yeah, maybe I could see that being a possibility. Yeah, I think I'll just go ahead and leave it at that. I kind of agree with that. I think that we would probably just establish somebody else in their place. Maybe. I don't know. We'd kind of have to at that point. Anyway, that wraps us up for the show. Thanks, you guys, very much for listening. And we will see you again in two weeks. 